Let me stop by welcoming everyone online right now, wherever you're at, whether you're watching on video or in our cafe or other services, we're so glad to have you joining us today. Before I jump in today's message, let me personally invite you out next Saturday to our church work day. This is a great opportunity to come and get your hands dirty and help us make this place look great for Easter. Uh, anytime you have important people coming over for dinner, uh, I don't know about you, but one of the things we do is we like clean our house like never before, make it look really, really good. Well, Easter is like that for us. We're going to have a lot of people visiting our church, many for the very first time, and we want to put our best foot forward. And more than that, it's a chance for you to get to know people, connect. Some of the best friendships you will make in our church are people that you work with uh, at these work days and events when you get your hands dirty with people. It's just a great opportunity uh, to build great relationships in your life. Well, I'm going to invite you to pull your message notes out. I am very excited for today's message. I know I said that last week, uh, and I thought last week was my favorite message of the series, where I think now this week is my favorite message of the series. Every week, I, I just feel like I'm learning so much more and, and just getting an even deeper appreciation for the Bible than I've ever had before. So I want to encourage you to pull your message notes out and hang on to that. I way over-prepared for you again. I've got a lot more content than I have the time to actually dig into, but the Bible is just so exciting. And if you don't have a paper Bible, uh, I cannot encourage you enough to stop by the table today, our Welcome Center. We have Bibles available for everyone, free of charge. Now, I've got no problem with reading the Bible digitally. I do it often. But there's something about also having a paper Bible. You know, one of like, you know, if it ever comes to like the end of the world and zombie apocalypse and there's no, you know, power to charge your phone, you're going to need something to read. I don't think that'll ever happen, but, uh, you know, there is, there is just something special about having a Bible where you can underline and you can highlight and you can review and you can take notes and just different things. And then we have the study Bibles also available in the cafe. And I'm just falling in love with the Bible more and more through this series. Uh, not in your notes, and it has zero to do with the message today, but just to, to you know, some, one of the things I'm studying recently that I discovered through this series that I'm really digging into right now and enjoying, and I don't know if you know this, but the book of Isaiah, you know, one of the major prophets in the Old Testament, is actually a mini Bible. What do I mean? There are 66 chapters in Isaiah. There are 66 books in the Bible. The first 39 books is the Old Testament. The second 39 books is the New Testament. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah is all about judgment. The last 27 chapters is all about redemption. The, the, the chapters correlate with each book of the Bible. Chapter 1 of Isaiah, earth, earth, Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the earth. Each book correlates with each chapter. It's amazing. Jesus comes onto the scene prophetically in the book of Isaiah, right where the New Testament begins. It's just one of these fascinating things about uh, just you could study the Bible forever and never get all of it out of it. I mean, there is so much there, and it's worthy of just our appreciation and our study and just kind of digging into it because it's just one of the most beautiful, life-transforming, life-giving, supernatural books ever written. I cannot just say enough about it. So it's been a great series for me. I'm getting a lot out of this. Today, what I want to do is uh, give you what I call the keys to interpreting the Bible. If you go to college for this, it's called hermeneutics. That was the class in Bible college on how to interpret the Bible. I want to take an entire semester's worth of material and condense it down into about 30 minutes with four 
key principles to help you interpret the Bible. So I'm going to give you the cliff note version of the hermeneutics class you would take in Bible college. To start today, I want to start with kind of a foundational truth that's very important to understand, and it's this. The written word is always above or superior, supersedes the prophetic word. Now, that's very important to understand, the written word. The written word, the Bible that we have in print is the written word, the Logos word of God, the written word. This is always superior, it is always above the prophetic word. Now, why do I say that? Because I've been pastoring now for over 20 years, and I cannot tell you how many times people have come to me and said, God said, God said, God said, and yet what they would say would contradict what God wrote. Let me be very clear. If God ever says anything to you that contradicts what God has already wrote, it is not God speaking to you. It doesn't matter where you got the message, what prophet you got the message from, what angel from heaven came to visit you in your backyard, doesn't matter. The written word, God will never speak anything to you personally that contradicts the written word, the word. It is superior And so we don't use God, and actually, if you study it out, that's what it means to use God's name in vain. You know, one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not use the Lord thy God's name in vain, that is not using God's name as a cuss word. That's that's a different sin. But using the Lord's name in vain, it's the word vain, vanity, selfishness. Anytime you said God said to further what, like, you go up to someone and say, God God said you're supposed to give me $100, that is using God's name in vain. That is, that is what it means to use God's name selfishly. So let's jump into it today. I'm going to give you kind of a condensed crash course in hermeneutics today, how to interpret the Bible as you read and as you study. And honestly, you don't need to go to college for this. I'm going to give you four key principles today that will help you in your private study time, and they work. Four principles. Here's the first one. Context is critical. Very, very important to understand the context of the Bible, the context, who it was written to, when it was written, what was going on historically, politically, socially, culturally, very important. I'm going to give you three subpoints under this one to help you figure out context. The first is who is it speaking to and why? Now, this one is critical. Who is it actually speaking to and why? Like, like, like who's receiving the message and what is going on for why they're receiving the message. Let me put it like this in your notes, and this is important to understand. All of the Bible is written for us, but not all of the Bible is written to us. Like You will benefit from every single word in this book, but not every word in this book is specifically directed at you. So it is all for us, but it's not all to us. When you study the Bible, there are three primary groups of people that the Bible is speaking to. There is the Jews, and that's the majority of the Bible speaking to the Jews. There is the Gentiles. Gentiles is just the Bible word for a non-Jewish person who is also, for us, not a Christian. And then finally, there is the church. That is those of us who have given our life to Jesus Christ. It's very important to understand who the Bible is speaking to so that you're not applying a principle speaking to one group of people to you if you're not part of that group. And we see it often, and it can be dangerous. Let me give you an example for why this is 
important. Let, let's just say Rick Warren, you know, the pastor in Orange County wrote Purpose Driven Life. Let's say, you know, Pastor Rick is writing a letter to Zion on our staff. If you haven't met Zion, she's awesome. She sings on our team and works in our cafe. Just an awesome young girl on our team. Let's say that Pastor Rick is writing Zion a letter. And in this letter, he's just encouraging her. And he's just giving her spiritual truth. And he's just, you know, just giving her all sorts of incredible insights to life and, and faith. Now, if I take that letter, even though he personally wrote that letter to Zion, I'm going to get a lot out of it. That letter is going to encourage me. I'm going to learn. I'm going to receive from that letter. But then let's also say at the end of the letter, he, he writes something just kind of to Zion. Now, I'm making this up, so don't start any rumors. This is not true. But let's just say at the end of the letter, he says, and by the way, Zion, I want you to stop seeing that married man. <laughs> well, I would know immediately that that, that that doesn't apply to me because I'm not seeing a married man. So he's not talking to me. So it's important to understand context. So let me show you an area um, that in over 20 years of ministry, I've had to counsel many, many people in this one thing because they, they've taken it out of context and they've kind of applied it to their life, even though this has nothing to do with them. And it's what Jesus teaches in Matthew 12. He says, and so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. I cannot tell you how many people I've had to counsel who said, I think I've crossed that line. I think I've sinned against the Holy Spirit. I think I've committed the unpardonable, the unforgivable sin. How do I know? Because I'm terrified that somehow that I, I, I've done it, I've crossed the line, and, and now I'm going to go to hell forever. Can you help me? Well, you again, have to understand context. Who is Jesus speaking to? He's speaking to the Jews. And not just the Jews, he's speaking to the Pharisees specifically who are actually plotting his execution. This has nothing to do with the church. This has nothing. A Christian cannot commit this sin. It was to one group of people for a specific reason. It's so important to understand that, or you're going to take this scripture and apply it to yourself, and then you're going to live in fear that somehow I crossed the line. I'll never be forgiven. God can never bring me back. And when you actually study this in context, the Holy Spirit is the part of God that draws us to salvation. What Jesus is saying is you need to be careful. If you continue to harden your heart to the Holy Spirit, you're hardening your heart to the one part of God that will actually draw you into forgiveness, that draws you into salvation. So this does not apply to Christians at all. In fact, if this actually applied to Christians, the Apostle Paul would have talked about this in every single one of his letters. Why? Because every single one of his letters was written to the church, to Christians. He would have said, hey, hey, by the way, just make sure you don't do this. He would have mentioned every letter. That's how important it would have been if this applied to Christians. So if you've ever felt like you've committed the unforgivable sin, rest at ease. This one doesn't apply to those of us that have given our life to Jesus. In fact, if you're here today, it's proof that you've not committed this one. Because the Holy Spirit brought you here today and he's drawing you to God, and you're here today because God wants to forgive you, and God wants to redeem you. And so if you are sitting in this room today, you have not done this one. Now let me give you another one, and, and I know you're going to call me Captain Obvious for this one, but I want to take you somewhere. Because there's a lot of things in the Bible that are recorded truly that are not truth. 
It records what people say, but it doesn't mean everything that is recorded is actually spiritual truth. For example, in Genesis chapter 3, this is Satan speaking to Eve in the Garden of Eden. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Satan is lying to her. This is not spiritual truth. But the problem is if you take a verse like this and you pull it out by itself without any context of understanding who it's speaking to and why it's saying it, you can create some really, really weird doctrine. Now, fortunately, I've never seen anyone kind of do that with this particular verse, but I have seen other verses people have done this with, and they've created a lot of damage and a lot of pain and a lot of hurt. Let me give you one, uh, for example, that I've heard for years pastors take completely out of context and quote this one at funerals, and it's caused a lot of damage. It's caused a lot of hurt. And it's where Job says in Job chapter 1, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I've heard that for years at funerals. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be. We even write worship songs. He gives and takes away. He gives and takes away. My heart will surely say, blessed be his name. There is nothing further from the truth. God does not take. You will not find any passage in the entire Bible where God takes away. Job is not speaking spiritual truth here. Job is speaking out of human emotion. His wife just died. His kids just died. He lost his business. He lost everything. He has sickness and and boils on his skin, and he's frustrated, and he's crying out, well, I guess God gives and God takes away, but he's not declaring truth because later on in the book of Job, it cleans it up. You see, Job doesn't have the advantage that we have to read the beginning of Job. See, we can read the beginning of Job and realize it wasn't God that took anything away from Job. It was Satan that took it away. Jesus says, Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come to give life. But you have some pastor take this out of context at a funeral, and you've got this couple thinking, God took my five-year-old son away. Or God took my father away. Or God took my brother away. It's critical to understand who it's speaking to and why. Let me give you another one in in, in the frame of a question. Is it arbitrary, which still applies? Is it arbitrary? Like, how do you Christians pick and choose what you follow in the Bible? Because there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that you don't follow anymore. This is the argument, if you ever had an atheist argue with you, they pull out these random laws of the Old Testament. You don't do this anymore, so why are you doing this? Why are you saying this is true when you don't? How do you pick and choose what you follow. And the argument goes, there's many good things in the Bible, but there are some things in the Bible that are now outdated. They're obsolete. We don't do them. We don't accept them anymore because we have new insights. We've grown as a culture. We know more scientifically, educationally, culturally. And so there are things in the Bible we don't do anymore. Well, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament addresses all of this. It's, it's almost as if Hebrews anticipated this argument to come. And so Hebrews kind of explains to us uh, the answer to, is it arbitrary what we follow and what we don't follow? In Hebrews chapter 1, it starts by saying, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. So God, God through the prophets, kind of wrote the Old Testament at many times, that's the Greek word polymeris, and in various ways, the Greek word polytropus, which means in pieces. So we had kind of God's plan in pieces, but we didn't have God's plan in whole. We couldn't see the big picture of what God was doing. We just had pieces of God's plan. But in these last days, he has spoken to us 
by his son. So we have the entire picture now. We have the full plan whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now, what does sit down represent? Sitting down represents it's finished. It's, it's complete. He did everything he came to do, and he sat down. It's final. The work of Christ is now final in our life. So what does that mean? The New Testament is the final word from God until judgment day. That means that the Bible cannot be improved on, it cannot be corrected, it cannot be added to, it cannot be updated, it cannot be amended or changed in any way. Jesus completed his work, he sat down, leaving us the final verdict, the final word, which means if we have new insights because of our culture, because of our time period, because of the modern viewpoint, does not change what the Bible teaches. Paul goes on to say, even if an angel from heaven brings you a revelation different from God's word, you are not to accept it. Let me give you a modern day kind of illustration of that. In the early 1800s, around 1820, a man by the name of Joseph Smith in upstate New York claimed that an angel visited him, gave him these golden tablets with a new law, new covenant, new revelation from God in which he used to found the Mormon religion and the Book of Mormon, which to this day, Mormons believe the Book of Mormon is equal in authority to the Holy Scriptures, to the Bible, that that it's on par with, and many believe it's actually superior to the Bible because it's a new revelation from God, where the Bible is old revelation. But what Hebrews teaches us is this is the final word of God. It cannot be updated. It cannot be added to. It cannot be changed in any way at all. So the question is, then how do we pick and choose? How do we pick and choose? Because, you know, in the Old Testament, it was illegal to eat shrimp, and it was illegal to eat bacon, and it was illegal to wear clothes that had mixed fabric. And so, you know, we're not doing that anymore. So so how are you kind of deciding what you're going to follow and what you're not going to follow. Because many Christians, they abandon whole parts of the Bible, and, and then, they, then they want us to follow other parts of the Bible and say, you have to do this, but then they're not doing this. So is it arbitrary? Well, if you continue to study the book of Hebrews, Hebrews makes it very clear it's not arbitrary at all. Christians don't decide what we follow, what we don't follow. The Bible decides what we follow and what we don't follow. And it's not because anything is obsolete. It's because it's already fulfilled. So we just read that Jesus provided purification for our sins, meaning we don't have to sacrifice animals anymore like they did in the Old Testament. You see, in the Old Testament, you would sacrifice an animal and the blood of that animal would cover your sin. In the New Testament, Jesus was the sacrifice on the cross and his blood not only covers our sin, his blood takes away our sin, making us clean before God. So in the Old Testament, the reason they did not eat shrimp and they didn't eat bacon and they didn't eat or they didn't wear certain types of clothing is because they wanted to be ceremonial clean to be able to come into the presence of God and worship God. In the New Testament, we're made ceremonial clean, Jesus says, not by what we eat, but what's in our heart. 
Remember, Jesus says it's not what you put in the mouth that makes a person unclean. It's what comes out of the mouth from, from the heart that makes him unclean. You see, what Jesus did on our behalf 2,000 years ago makes us clean so we can now worship God, and it has nothing to do with what we eat and what we wear. So it's not that the Old Testament law is obsolete. It's that it's been fulfilled. We still follow the principle of it. The principle is you have to be clean to worship God, but we've been made clean not by what we do. We've been made clean by what Jesus has done on our behalf. That's the, so it's not arbitrary. The Bible is very clear about what we follow and what we don't follow. What about the things that, that, that are really hard to understand that, you know, in the Bible they did it, but we don't do it today. Why don't we do it today? And why did the Bible allow it? Why did the Bible teach it? And this is something I've heard from some small group leaders that people really wrestle over. And so I can't answer every single one of them. I'm going to answer two of them today. Now, just, just trust me on this. There is an answer for all of the hangups you have. Like if you sit down, there's an answer for all the hangups. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to deal with two of them today. First, let's talk about polygamy because people have a hard time with that. You know, they're like, well, the Bible teaches polygamy. Like all these guys in the Old Testament, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of their wives. And I just, I can't believe the Bible taught polygamy and, 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 and God allowed that and everything was going. I mean, it's just, it, that, that just seems so wrong. So I don't know if I can trust the Bible because of all the polygamy. So what does the Bible actually say about polygamy? Quite a bit. But what does the Bible teach about polygamy? See, there's a difference between what the Bible says about polygamy and what the Bible teaches about polygamy. Let me show you the Bible's teaching on polygamy. Genesis chapter 2. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. That's what the Bible teaches about polygamy. In the Hebrew, this is singular. It does not say a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wives. It says wife. God's teaching was always one man, one woman, period. Well, what about all these men in the Bible that had all these wives? Yes, and they had lots of problems as a result. If you read the book of Genesis and you believe God is teaching polygamy, you don't know how to read. If anything, the book of Genesis is a critique. It shows how stupid it is. It shows how problematic it is. What the Bible does do is record the actions of him. And I love the fact that when you read the stories of all these great men and women of God, they had flaws, they had issues, they had problems, and yet God still chose to use them because it gives me hope for me. You know what I'm saying? Like God uses imperfect people. And what I love about the Bible is it records people's flaws. It doesn't record it as what, like they murdered people in the Old Testament. That's not supported by God, endorsed by God. So you got to understand how to read some of this stuff in context. Now, let me do another one that a lot of people are hung up on because it's not just Old Testament, it's New Testament. Like Paul wrote about this and I just, I, I just struggle. Like how could Paul say this? And that's the issue of slavery. Like, like what, why, why would Paul endorse and support slavery? Why would Paul write about this? Why would Paul say slaves need to obey? Why didn't he take a stand? I mean, social justice, I mean, be defiant, stand up against the system. Why, why did Paul, like, allow this? Well, the first question that I would have to ask you is, what is your definition of slavery? Like, what is your view of slavery? Well, most of us, if we, if we really thought about it, our definition of slavery would be kind of the African-American slave trade of the 1800s. 
or we think of sex slavery or human trafficking today, to which my, my response would be, well, if that is your definition of slavery, the Bible is very vocal and very clear. It is against that in the Old Testament and the New Testament. See, here's what Paul says in Timothy. He says, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders, people that are involved in kidnapping and trading slaves and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else, all of that is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. The New Testament is clearly against slave trading, the, the type of slavery that, that you imagine in your mind. The Old Testament is too. If someone is caught kidnapping a fellow Israelite and treating or selling them as a slave, the kidnapper must die. You must purge the evil from among you. You see, when you think about slavery in the Bible, you have to think bankruptcy law. You see, they didn't have bankruptcy in the Bible times. If you borrowed money from somebody and you couldn't pay them back, what happened is you became their slave. They didn't physically own you. They owned your productivity. Basically, you had to go work for that person until you paid off the debt, and there was a lot of rules about it. Like you could, not, you could not work for somebody more than seven years. On the seventh year, they had to release you whether the debt was paid off or not. And again, they didn't own you physically. They owned your productivity. It's kind of like garnishing your wages is what it was. Because it goes on to say in Exodus, an owner who hits a male or female slave in the eye and destroys the eye must let the slave go free to compensate for the eye. An owner who knocks out the tooth of a male or female slave must let the slave go free to compensate for the tooth. So you weren't allowed to abuse slaves because it, you didn't own them, you owned their work because they were paying off a debt. And if a slave ran away, you always gave the slave the benefit of the doubt in the Bible. It says, if a slave has taken refuge with you, do not hand them over to their master. Their master for them to run away, their master must have been abusing them, and so you protect. So the slave had rights. And see, this is very, very different than our understanding of slavery. So when you're hung up with issues in the Bible, here, here's, here's the best principle to apply. Consider it doesn't mean what you think it means. Because oftentimes you're interpreting it through your 2019 modern viewpoint. There's probably something else going on that you're missing to give you some context. Now let me give you the last point under context how do I read the different genres of the Bible? The Bible has very, very literary styles. There's all these different literary styles. How do I read the different styles, the different genres of the Bible? Well, one of the resources I gave you a few weeks ago, thebibleproject.com, actually has entire videos about this. There's a video I watched this week, how to read the literary styles of the Bible that explains the different styles and how you read them, because the Bible assumes that you read each literary style as its literary style or as its genre. So what are they? Well, you've got narrative or history writing in the Bible. It's just a historical recording of the facts of what took place. There's spiritual truth there. Uh, they, they reveal the character of Jesus, and a lot of it's symbolic of Jesus. You have poetry, very emotional, very uh, symbolic language. Poetry, the way you read it, it's as if God allows you to look over somebody's shoulder at their relationship with God. The highs, the lows, the ups, the down, uh, very descriptive. Uh, an example would be Psalm 42, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. Now, 
Uh, again, we read this as poetry. We don't take it literal and, and feel like we got to come into church and pant. Ha, 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 ha. I mean, no, you read poetry as poetry. That, that, that's how you read the different writings. You have wisdom writing, which is you know, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, the book of James and the New Testament. It's just practical wisdom and spiritual truth for living life. You've got prophecy, the major prophets, the minor. Shows you the emotional side of God. God has emotions. He cares for his people. He warns them. He challenges them. You have the Gospels, which are uh, kind of like history, but they're, they're good news declarations. They're faith declarations about Jesus. You have the epistles, which are the letters to the church. The epistles are the easiest uh, for us to read because they're written to us. And so you don't have to interpret the epistles as much as the other writings of the Bible because there's some cultural things that they were dealing with culturally during their time, but the principles of the epistles apply directly to us because they were written to the Christian church. And again, that's why having a great study Bible is so helpful. You know, one of the things I love, this is the Faith Life Bible that, that we have here. Uh, one of the things I love about these Bibles is at the beginning of every book of the Bible, it has kind of a little research paper that tells you kind of who wrote it, a little bit of background. Like here, here's the letter of Philippians that Paul wrote. It says, you know, the opening verse identifies Paul and Timothy as the authors. Paul planted the church in Philippi on a second missionary journey, and then Paul writes to these Christians from prison, probably in Rome, perhaps in Caesarea. While there is no record of Paul being in prison in Ephesus, he did encounter serious conflict there during his third missionary journey. So it helps you understand kind of what was going through Paul's mind when he wrote it, where Paul was a little bit when he wrote it, uh, a little bit of why he wrote it. Very helpful in understanding context. And then finally, there's apocalyptic writing in the Bible. Apocalyptic is is kind of the book of Revelations, half of the book of Daniel, it's revealing things to come. It's like future events, which can be scary and intimidating if you don't understand the purpose of it. Like Revelations, again, who is it speaking to and why? Well, it was speaking to one group of people, the early church. Why? They were being tortured and they were being killed. And God wanted to get them a message to say, if you hold on to your faith, there's something so much better coming. It actually is a message of hope when you really study. Now, let me give you the next three, and, and we're not going to take as long on these three, so, so rest at ease. Number two, let the Bible interpret the Bible. Um, this is a great principle because there's so many times people read into the Bible and they, they, they make things say something they're not really saying. Let me give you one of the most famous uh, uh, uses of, of misinterpreting the Bible uh, that I've seen. It's in 2 Corinthians 12. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He says, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now, growing up in church for years, I taught this, you know, I heard this taught as Paul had a, a sickness that was just thorn in his flesh. He was either like, you know, people say he was blind because he had to write real big in that one letter when he was just trying to emphasize something or he had some other type of ailment or sickness, which doesn't make any sense that Paul was sick because every time they killed him, he came back to life. Like he had some kind of weird health that you couldn't even kill the guy. Like they killed him three times and he came back from the dead, all three times. They, you know, a snake bit him, a very deadly poisonous viper bit him and he shook the snake off into the fire. He had health in his body. It doesn't make sense that it was sickness. I've also heard pastors teach that it was sin. Paul had sin in his life that, that, and the sin kept him humble. Like he had some addiction or some you know, secret sin that he was dealing with that kept him. It was neither one of those when you study his right. 
You have to let the Bible interpret the Bible. This phrase, thorn in the flesh, was used often in the Bible. You go back to the Old Testament, Numbers 33, if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land, those you allow to remain will become barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sight. Judges 2, so now I declare that I will no longer drive out the people living in your land. They will be thorns in your sight. All throughout the Old Testament, every time it says thorn in flesh, thorn, you have to understand that the Bible uses phrases very, very intentionally. Nothing in the Bible is accidental. Like I'm doing a study right now in the Old Testament. Every time you see the word God, that is the Hebrew word Elohim, that means the God of creation and power. Every time you see the word Lord, it's the Hebrew word Yahweh, the God of covenant. And it's amazing when you see how each word is used in the Old Testament. Like in the Noah story, God, the God of power, sent a flood. The Lord put Noah in the ark. Every time you see the word Lord, it's always in relationship with mankind. Every time you see the word God, it's always in his majesty and his power. So, so phrases are important. Well, all throughout the Bible, thorns in the flesh were always people. Paul's issue is not sin or sickness. It was the false teachers that were undermining his message. We actually have a phrase for this in our world today. We call people that are bothering us a pain in the neck, right? I mean, I was thinking neck. What were you thinking? But it's always referred to people. Let me show you one we looked at a couple weeks ago. Jesus is, after the resurrection, he's walking with two disciples on the road. He's teaching them the Bible. They don't recognize him. They don't understand who he is. They're having dinner later that night. It says, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, broke it, gave thanks, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open. All of a sudden, like, like he, he explained the entire Old Testament to them. They're blind. He takes bread, breaks it. Their eyes are open. What does it mean? What does it mean? Well, we see this phrase a lot in the Gospel of Luke. You go back, I mean, you see it when he feeds the 5,000. You go back two chapters of 22. He took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them, said, this is my body. Again, when you, when you go back and you let the Bible interpret the Bible, you get such rich meaning out of it. Let me give you another one that's very, very important when you're trying to learn how to study and interpret the Bible, and it's the benefits to studying in community. The Bible was made to study on your own, but it's not enough. The Bible was also made to study in community. That's why as a church, we're so passionate about small groups. Take the message you hear on Sunday and go study it in homes. That's the model of the New Testament. They had public worship where they were taught the word, and then they had house to house where they, where they really applied it and learned it and discussed it and made it work in their life. And the New Testament assumes that that's the pattern we live off of. In Acts 17, it says, as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. So they got together in the community of believers. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. So why were they, why were they of more noble character? For they received the message with great eagerness, and they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. So they got together as a group, they got together as a community, and they studied it daily. And look at the result. As a result, many of them believed as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek women. The men, the New Testament just assumes that this is part of our spiritual growth. When we study the Bible together, we grow spiritually. If you're not studying the Bible with other, if all you're doing is studying by yourself, you're not growing to your potential. Because part of our spiritual growth has to do with studying God's Word 
in community, in groups. Acts 13 says from Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath they entered the synagogue and they sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the reading from the Old Testament, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. This shows us a very important truth about studying in community. God has gifted all of us differently. Every one of us have a different grace, a different gift from God in our life, which, which allows us to see the Bible in a unique way. Studying in community helps me see things that I can't see on my own because there's somebody else studying with me that, that may have a revelation for a certain part of a scripture that I desperately need in my life that I'm missing that God has gifted them to be able to see. It, it, there's protection, there's safety in studying together. It's one of the huge benefits in learning to understand scripture. Now let me get to this very last point, and, and let me say this about the last point today. You can do the other three perfectly. Without this last one, none of it works. And I'll also say, you cannot have any of the other three, but if you have this last one, God will speak to you. Because it's the key to all of it. And it's simply this, the Holy Spirit, the great teacher. Without the Holy Spirit, this book will never make sense to you. The God, you'll never hear God's voice in this book without the Holy Spirit. It'll just be a book of ancient writing that doesn't quite make sense, that's confusing without God's Spirit in your life. Jesus put it like this, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. How does the Holy Spirit teach us all things? Because he wrote all things. See, it was the Holy Spirit that guided every writer of the Bible to craft every word. The Holy Spirit is the only one that can reveal to you the deep truth and the deep meaning of this book. Paul goes on to teach it like this in Corinthians. He says, the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. No one knows the thoughts of God. This book is the thoughts of God. It is the Word of God. Who knows this book better than the Spirit of God? The Spirit who is our teacher. The Spirit who is our revealer. See, this book without the Holy Spirit, this, this logos is just written word and it doesn't make sense. But it's the Holy Spirit that takes the logos and he breathes into it and it becomes rhema. It becomes the word of God for us. It's the Spirit. He says, what we have received is not the Spirit of this world, but it's the Spirit who is from God so that we may understand what God has freely given us. Without the Holy Spirit, we'll never fully understand this. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spiritual taught words. He goes on to say, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. You've already dealt with this, many of you, at work, in your neighborhood, with family members. They don't understand, why do you believe that? That just doesn't make any sense. They don't have the Spirit. 
It doesn't make sense without the Spirit. Only the Spirit can reveal the truth of this to us. He goes on to say, and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. This makes sense. I mean, think about it like this. You can't speak one word without releasing your breath, right? Well, the Holy Spirit is who breathes the word into us. He he is the breath of God. In fact, this word spirit, when you look at it in the original Greek language, the Greek word pneuma, it doesn't mean spirit. It means breath or wind. Now, the English translators made up this word spirit. This word did not exist until they translated the Bible. They made it up. Why? Because the word breath didn't quite make sense to them. I mean, think about it. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy breath. But that's really what the word, it is the breath of God. He is the breath of God. And you can't speak one word without releasing breath. God's word came through God's breath. And it's God's breath that reveals it. God's breath takes logos and turns it into rhema in our life, the voice of God in our life. We hear it. And it's only with him. But this, this is where Christianity gets challenging for some. And I know this may freak some of you out, but you've got to realize that there's a part of Christianity that is supernatural. Like, we are not here today to study an ancient book to learn how to become better people. Like, that is not, that's religion. That's not Christianity. Christianity is connecting to a very living, a very active, a very real, a very supernatural God who is alive and at work in our life through His Spirit. And only through the Spirit does any of this make sense. Does any of it work? But, but that's the challenge because for so many of us, we understand God the Father because we, we, we got the concept of Father down. Even those of us that didn't have great fathers still understand the concept. We understand God the Son because we saw all the movies and we can kind of picture that. But when it comes to the God the Spirit thing, this, this Holy Spirit, this, you know, in the old King James, Holy Ghost, like, I don't know. I don't know about that. And so for so many of us, you know, we have a relationship with the Father, we have a relationship with the Son, but very few of us really have a, a friendship with the Holy Spirit. Paul puts it like this, you need a deep, intimate friendship with the Holy Spirit. And it makes sense because Jesus is in heaven right now. The Father is in heaven right now, but guess who's on earth with us? The Holy Spirit, the breath of God. That's why Jesus says, it's better for you that I go away. No, it's better that you stay. And Jesus said, it's better that I go. Because if I go back to my Father, I'm going to leave you my spirit. And my spirit can do more for you than me and flesh and blood can do for you. Because my spirit will live inside of you and work within you and be the greatest friend, the greatest teacher, the greatest comforter, the greatest advocate you will ever have. But it's hard. I mean, imagine trying to describe wind to somebody who's never been outside. Like, how would you do it? Well, wind is kind of like, you know, it's like, well, you know, wind is, uh, just come outside. You just got to feel it. I mean, that's, that's kind of the job I have describing the Holy Spirit to you. Because he is the breath of God. He is the wind of God. And it's not something that you can necessarily logically comprehend. It's something that you experience. It's something that you feel. It's somebody that you know. The Holy Spirit has mind, will, and emotions. He is, he is the third person of God. He's not some mystical 
essence or force. He is a person that you can have a friendship with. And yes, when you gave your life to Jesus, he came to live inside of you. But the Holy Spirit living inside of you is a little different than the Holy Spirit being active, filling you, empowering you, releasing his fullness in you. Like, like so many Christians kind of keep the Holy Spirit in a little you know, room. Just stay in your room. Like, stay in your room. Don't mess with stuff. Because the other thing about wind, when you, when you try to describe wind, wind is unpredictable. Jesus said, you don't know where it comes from, you don't know where it goes. And that's true today. At airports, they've got those little wind you know, socks, so they, they know where the wind is blowing because they can't predict it ahead of time. Well, if you want God to be neat and to fit in a little box, the Holy Spirit's going to mess you up because the Holy Spirit's unpredictable. I like the fact that there's part of God that I'm not going to fully wrap my mind around, that I can't totally comprehend. And all I can do is encourage you, because there are societies today that are totally illiterate, that don't have technology like us. They don't have the benefit of really learning the first three points I talked about today, but they got that fourth point. And I'm telling you, God is speaking to them as clear, and they are spiritually as mature as anyone. Like you can have all the, you can speak fluent Greek, fluent Hebrew. You can know everything about first century culture and context. Without the Holy Spirit, none of this makes sense. It doesn't work. It's just a history book. He is what activates it. And so I'm encouraging you today, embrace him, build a friendship with him, talk to him, give him control, invite him to just fill you completely as the Bible talks about. It's a totally different thing than him just living inside of you. And he would love to do that. I, I rarely ever do I read my Bible without saying, Holy Spirit, I need you to reveal this to me. If I try to read this in my brain, I'm in trouble. Like, like if it's up to me trying to logically comprehend whatever God wants to say to me, I need you to breathe this word into me, to return, take this logos and turn it into rhema as I read. And I'm telling you, when you invite the Holy Spirit to study the Bible with you, it changes. It's powerful. You'll see it. You'll know it. It's totally different than just trying to do this in your own human brain. There is a supernatural part of Christianity. Would you close your eyes with me? Father, in the name of Jesus, God, I just ask today that we would open our heart, Lord, to your word in a new way. And Lord, we would allow your spirit to take full control in guiding our lives. Holy Spirit, we invite you today to become very real, to be the friend that we need more than anything else, the comforter, the advocate, the teacher. Teach us the word. Reveal to us. Take this logos and breathe life into it that it becomes rhema and we hear the voice of God in your word. Holy Spirit, you're the only one that can do that. And so we just, we, we pray today that, that you would be so active and real in our life that we would know you deeply and intimately. In the name of Jesus, amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to close with one song. Our prayer team will be available today. If you fill out a prayer card, I want to encourage you to bring it forward to somebody on our prayer team. And if you're here today, you may be a Christian, but you've never really invited the Holy Spirit to just fill you with his presence. Not just live inside of you, but to fill you with his presence, to, to really become active in your life. All throughout the book of Acts, we see a precedence that when, when people were in that condition, other Christians would pray for them. 
And when they would pray for him, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit became new and real to them in a fresh way. If you've never had an experience like that, I want you to come talk to somebody on our prayer team. They'd love to pray with you today that the Holy Spirit would just become so real in your life that, that you, you would develop a friendship with him you've never had before, you've never known, that he would be so active and, and you would see Christianity come to life at a whole new level. It's powerful. Our prayer team would love to pray with you for that today. Let's close with this song and then we'll be out of here.